This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show as we kick off a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And if I sound like I'm in a good mood, somebody was playing Luther Vandross music, and that always puts me in a good mood. So, hey, we'd love your calls. Uh, this is a program, as you know, dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, anything that's on your heart, uh, questions about something going on in your life, something going on in the world that we live in. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Hope you had a great day in church yesterday. For us, it was Communion Sunday, and got to see people who are now starting to filter back that we haven't seen for a time, and it's always a really, really good thing to have the family back together. And um, we were able to enjoy that yesterday, and I hope that was true for you. Hey, just a, a note, uh, informational note. Tonight, ladies, our Sweet Summer Devotion series starts with our ladies' Bible studies. Um, not Bible studies, but it's just the Lord every summer uh, picks. Paul has been talking about it, but every summer he picks uh, eight or nine women, depending on how many weeks we're going. And uh, they share their heart, and it's an amazing thing to see what the Lord does in this. We've been doing this now for a whole bunch of years, and it's just uh, a, an unbelievable blessing uh, what happens. There's a, a, somebody sharing, and then there's a, a not recorded Q&A uh, so that people can get sort of really personal. Uh, so it's always best to be here. That's at 7 o'clock. And, of course, we have child care provided. Um, at the same time, you can bring your families. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men. Um, and then we have uh, junior high school and high school age Bible studies at the same time. So you can bring the family and um, be blessed that way. That's tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, our initial speaker this week for the Sweet Summer Devotions is Brielle Ballesteros, and uh, she's a young woman who's grown up here. We sent her away to Bible college. She came back, and I can't wait to hear. I won't be able to listen until tomorrow, but I can't wait to hear uh, what the Lord has put in her heart to share. Okay, that's what's going on here. Let's get to some questions while we wait for your phone calls. Uh, Matthew makes a statement I think he wants me to respond to. He said, I believe that when unbelievers died, they just ceased to exist. I think the Bible clearly teaches that. Well, Matthew, if you think the Bible clearly teaches that, you don't know how to study your Bible. And I don't say that with any animus. I just want you to be able to rightly divide the Word of God. Jesus speaks often about um, eternal torment. In fact, he spoke uh, enough about eternal torment that people get tired of hearing it. He spoke a lot about it. Um, you know, we need to know what the consequences are of rejecting Jesus Christ. And uh, I know it makes people feel better to believe that when unbelievers died, they just cease to exist. But that's not what the Bible tells us. In Luke chapter 16, Matthew, uh, Jesus tells a story. It's not a parable. 
Uh, it's a story about two men who die on the same day. One of them goes to paradise. That's the place where Abraham is. Um, uh, that place, by the way, is now empty because Jesus is empty. He didn't take all those people to heaven with him. Uh, but the other place is a place of torment. And the rich man who's in the torment, he said, you know, I'm, I might die. I'm in agony in this fire. And basically, Father Abraham tells him, well, there's nothing that can be done about it. There's too big a gap. He can't come to you. You can't come to him. Uh, he was aware of his torment. He could see paradise from where he was, so he could see what he was missing. Um, but he is in torment. And Jesus talks about being uh, in torment forever and ever and ever where the worm doesn't die and he uses very poetic language several times to understand that the Bible all we have to do is open it read what it says don't try to interpret it or reinterpret it don't try to use your emotions or what feels loving to you to decide what it says just take what it says at face value. So Matthew, um, I'm sorry to inform you that um, people who die separated from Christ, they can't cease to exist because we're all born to live forever. The minute we take air out of our mother's womb, we're going to live somewhere forever. And Jesus gives us the choice to make. We can live forever with him. We call that heaven. Or we can live separated from him. We call that hell. But both conditions are forever and ever and ever. And that's what the Bible clearly teaches. So Matthew, hope that at least encourages you to do a little bit more study. Here's a question from Alan. He says, Pastor Ron, what exactly does James mean when he says that teachers are held to a higher standard of judgment? Well, Alan, let me read the passage. It's James 3.1, and then I'll talk about it. Uh, James says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, Alan, this is not a judgment for salvation. Uh, salvation is assumed. Uh, this is a judgment for works. And when somebody is given the gift to teach the Bible, my opinion, no better job, no better calling or gifting in the world. But it means that we better be careful what we teach and how we teach it. We're representing the Lord. And if we misrepresent him, I always think of, of, of preachers that are firing brimstone and yelling and screaming at people or scolding their flocks. Uh, that's to misrepresent the Lord. And that men, or sadly in some cases women, are going to be judged by God. Lose their rewards, their motives are wrong, and they're going to be held to higher judgment. But more than that, Alan, what James means is that we who teach the word, we're going to be judged on how we live the word in our own lives. Uh, I think it was just Friday night I was talking about this with our church uh, because I was in Second Peter chapter 2. We were finishing the chapter. And we're really accountable to be who we say we are. You know, it's disingenuous to be one person in the pulpit. You know, we have all these righteous platitudes to tell people. But then in private, you're living in sin or you're, you're living in, in judgment of people or your, 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 your heart, your motives for serving are not the right ones. Well, if we don't live the way we teach, if we don't practice what we preach, then we're going to be held to a higher standard of judgment. You talk about losing rewards. I can't even imagine. Alan, you know, one of the things that has terrified me, and this is a holy fear of God, but one of the things that's terrified me for all these 25 years that I've been teaching the Bible as a pastor here is I can't imagine Jesus saying to me, I wasn't mad at the people. I didn't get frustrated or impatient with the people. Why did you? I just can't imagine that. You know, Alan, 25 years, I think I told the church this the other night, I have not raised my voice one time. Not one time. Um... I never have 
began a Bible study expecting anything. I didn't do it. My motive wasn't for people to say, wow, what a great Bible study, Pastor Alan. Um, I teach as though I'm talking to a bunch of friends, but my real audience is just one, and that's Jesus. And when we neglect that gifting, we who should know better, well, we're going to pay a price for that. Not salvation, but in terms of rewards received and rewards lost. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, I struggle a lot with God having to pour out his wrath on people who don't believe. Why is that necessary when God wants to forgive sinners? Well, anonymous, that, that's a question I've had a lot of times on this program. Um, but, but you see, wrath, the wrath of God, Romans chapter 1, is already being poured out on the Christ-rejecting world. Not because God is angry, he's not having a temper tantrum. Um, his wrath is judgment for sin. You see, Jesus endured the wrath of God in our place. Yesterday was communion. We get to talk about that when we're partaking of the bread. God was judging sins. He has to judge. That's what holiness does. That's what justice is all about. And so Jesus said, for all who will believe in me, I'll take the punishment you deserve. It's always for me, especially in a poignant time. I was saved pretty late in life, anonymous. I was just before my 40th birthday. And I remember um, thinking, God, how could you forgive me for all the horrible things I've done? And then as I grew in the knowledge of God's word, I realized that Jesus loved me so much that he physically, literally became my sin so I could be forgiven. And if God just overlooked sin, he wouldn't be holy or just, so he had to punish Jesus. The price of our peace, Isaiah says, was placed upon him. The chastisement or punishment was placed on Jesus. Now, what's amazing about this anonymous is that Jesus did this willingly. He did this obediently. And he did it for you, for me, thinking about us, for the joy set before him, he endured the agony of the cross. What that means is he was thinking about you and he was thinking about me. I always have this picture in my mind, you know, Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world, so you know, he obviously, he knows everyone who's ever going to be saved. And I always imagine that the names in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, you know, there's there's books that are going to be opened in heaven. And there's a book, if you don't know Jesus, a book of your life, the things that you've done. And when that book is opened, it's going to pronounce guilty as charged. But your book, Anonymous, and my book as a believer, the book of my life, every page, is going to be stained with his blood. Crystal Lewis used to sing this great, great song I love called The Bloodstained Pages. And I, the picture I have is of, of, of Jesus turning the pages. You know, he's the judge. All judgment has been given unto me. And he's turning the pages. And every page that's covered with my sins, all the accusations against me, the enemy, accuses us night and day. And every page is stained with blood, so Jesus can't see any of the charges. So there's only one conclusion he can come to, innocent. And then as the names in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, go down before him, I always imagine him saying, waiting for that moment, he sees my name, Ron Arbaugh. And then he can say, it is finished to tell us die. And he could die. He did it for me. And in the slight chance there's unbelievers listening to this program today, I want you to know that Jesus will do that for you. He's already done it. All you have to do is believe, and then you can benefit from his death. I had somebody ask me last week, well, 
How do we know for sure? Well, we know for sure because the tomb that they placed him in was empty. They put a dead man in there and he came to life just the way he said he would. And because he's alive, because that tomb was empty, we can know that the wrath of God that was poured out, Jesus took it for us and his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. So don't struggle with importance. Just think in terms of holiness. I mean, instinctively, we all want justice, except for our, uh, ourselves, of course. We have this sense that when we see a wrong, it needs to be righted. Historically, we know that truly, truly evil people, demon-possessed people have lived and caused the death of multiplied millions of people in their time. We don't want them to get off. But the good thing about God is he can't let anybody off. That's why Jesus had to suffer. That's why he poured out his wrath. And if people stand before God on the day of judgment, not covered by the blood of Jesus, then they're going to have to accept the consequences of their own sin. God gave them a way out. He doesn't want to pour out his wrath, but he has to because they've made a choice in life that Jesus will honor in eternity. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, let's go to our friend Ruben from Seguin on line one. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. I pray that you're having a blessed day today. I am, Ruben. Thank you very that, much. That's great. Um, I have a question for you, if you could clarify something for me. Uh, okay. I'm in the book of Isaiah, as I spoke to you last week, and uh, I noticed how you said... Uh, that he would jump from one to like another. I never noticed it, but after you told me, I started noticing the breaks. Well, I have a question. Uh, Isaiah 46, um, it begins with the gods of Babylon, and he speaks about how he's going to destroy Nebo and and Bel and all that. But then he jumps to to start talking to Jacob, uh, the remnant of the people of Israel. Now he says in verse... Uh, four, um, no, yeah, the second part of four says, I am he, I am he who will sustain you, I have made you, and I will carry you, I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. Then I'm going to jump over to um, uh, uh, number ten. It says, I make known the end from the beginning. Now, two-part question. Can we take this verse and apply it to our lives as if God is speaking to us and telling us that I am, you know, I will sustain you and I have made you and I will carry you. And then what exactly does it mean in verse, actually, what is that? Uh, 10, yeah, I make known the end from the beginning. And my radio broke and my app is broke, so I'm going to have to listen to what you have to say on the phone. Okay, thank you, Ruben. Good to hear from you and good to hear you sounding so well. Um, Verse 10, let me start there. Verse 10 is sort of his qualifications. You know, any God that says, look, I got this. I I, I will sustain you. I will take care of you. I will never leave you, forsake you. Any of the wonderful promises that that God makes, well, um, you might say, well, yeah, but I don't feel like everything's going to be okay. Well, verse 10 are his qualifications. It's how we can know for sure. He says, I'm the only one that knows the end from the beginning. I know how everything turns out. I'm sovereign in power. Um, uh, the, the, the validation is that everything I say will come to pass. Uh, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. That's a very, very bold statement to make. And it's God simply saying that I'm the one, the only one that has the power to do that. So when you go back to the fourth verse that you talked about, and he says, I'm he who will sustain you, um, uh, he, let me go back to the first, first part of the verse. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I'm he, I'm he who will sustain you. Reuben, that should be an especially valuable promise to you with everything that you've been through, even to your old age. God knows the day that we're going to die. We're going to go to be with him. But he says, until that time, I'm the one who's going to hold you in my hand. 
the Gospel of John, he says, the Father has you in his hand and no one can snatch you and, and I have you in my hand and, and no one can snatch you from my hand. So it's Jesus simply saying that, that uh, I've got this. Um, I, I like the fifth verse, to whom you will compare me or count me equal, to whom will you liken me, that we may be compared. In other words, who else can do these things? And the answer, of course, is no one can do those things. So these are promises made to Israel throughout the time. Now, they, they applied in part to the day that Isaiah prophesied, the, the, the time that he was living, but they also had longer-term prophetic value in the sense that when you're in captivity for seven years, don't worry, I will sustain you. I'm the one who made these promises that you will return to Israel, that you will be gathered together. And and uh, so so we know historically they have value. It's going to be true all the way to the end of time through the Great Tribulation as he sustains Israel. But this is a perfect example, Reuben, of of Old Testament promises that while made to Israel, they have tremendous application and value for us. When God has made a promise, never leave you, forsake you, he's never going to leave you, forsake you. You say, well, how do I know? I'm, things, I'm so scared. Things don't seem like I'm going to be okay. Um, he says, look, I'm not like anybody else who makes promises. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, calls God, and this is a literal translation, a not lying God. And again, Reuben, with everything that you've been through, uh, verses 4 and 5 uh, and 10, um, um, uh, I have to have such great, great value for, for you. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. You know what I love the most about that promise, Reuben, is that in the work that we do for the Lord, you know, when we're to say to him, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, we know that as long as we hang in there with Jesus, we're going to accomplish all the things that he has for us to accomplish. When we blow it sometimes, all we have to do is repent. The gifts of God are irrevocable. And God, who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is the author, the beginner, and the finisher or perfecter of your faith. And so, everything you've been through, everything that you've been through, Reuben, none of it will be wasted. God will use it for his glory. Good question, Reuben. Thank you. And stay in Isaiah. What a great, great passage. And uh, you're, you're getting into the best parts. When you get to Isaiah 50, from there to, to the end, it's a treasure, absolute treasure. Thank you for the call. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question. We've got about three minutes, I think. Uh, here's a question. I can, I can last one for this half. Jeffrey wants to know, what counsel do you have for a relatively new Christian who is having trouble getting into a Bible study and prayer routine? Um, Jeffrey, I talked about this um, um, a little bit yesterday in my Sunday study. You might want to go to calvaryessay.com and listen to it. But, but the, the, the counsel is to train yourself. Discipline. This is something you have to do. You know, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. We get up in the morning and we eat. Um, because we know we need to. We need fuel. We need strength uh, for the day ahead. Um, the spiritual food that you need is far more important than the human food that we, that we eat. So the counsel is just purpose in your heart. You're going to do it. Schedule it. Set a time. Um, let everybody know if, you, if you're in a home where there's distractions, just say, nope, this is going to be my time in the Bible. Um, you also want to schedule, if you're married, schedule that time in the, in the Word with your wife, if you have kids, with your kids. But you've got to schedule time for Bible study and prayer. God knows exactly what's going to happen to you every day. Doesn't it make sense to check with Him really early every day, just, hey, God, what's up? And I'm not being disrespectful here. 
But basically, we're saying, Lord, you know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. You promised to prepare me for everything. So here I sit at your feet. Lord, is there anything I need to hear? And he'll prepare you. Now, you'll never be prepared if you don't incorporate Bible study into that. So it's just something you're going to have to do. Start with small chunks of scripture. Read systematically, Jeffrey. But every day. Systematically, by that you start at the beginning of a book, you don't stop to get to the end of the book. And take off little bits and pieces. Let the Lord speak to His Word as living and active. Thank you for the question. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left on our program today. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app. This one is from Nacho. He says, can I use 2 Peter 2.12 to demonstrate that animals are not in heaven? Well, let me read the verse and then I'll answer your question, Nacho. It says, but these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. Um, You know, because the context, Nacho, has nothing to do really with the animals, uh, the the, the object, the subject-object in the sentence, the object is the people who are blaspheming. And Jesus is saying, or Peter, Jesus through Peter, is saying they're like unreasoning animals. And even more to the context, he's talking about false teachers. So... um, um, to stretch the point and say, well, that's a, that's a verse, it's a proof text that animals aren't going to be in heaven is difficult to do. Now, animals are not going to be in heaven. They're going to perish for sure. Uh, we're made in the image of God. Um, being made in the image of God indicates really only two things. There's a lot of talk about, especially with the things going on in our world, about everybody's made in the image of God. But that just means we have the will to choose. We have the free will to make a choice. Just like God chooses us, we can choose or reject him. And the other thing that makes us in the image of God is that we're going to live for eternity. So um, we have a spirit. Um, animals die. Um, so, so again, I guess, and like animals, they too will perish. Um, again, I don't know that it's a proof text, Nacho, but... Um, I see how you can understand it that way. So um, I hope that helps. Every time I talk about animals not going to heaven, people get mad at me. So I want I want to be sure not to mess anybody up. Here's a neat question from Janet from our email inbox. We just got it. Why is Mary not in Hebrews chapter eleven? Well, um, Janet, Hebrews chapter eleven is filled with Old Testament saints, uh, people who looked forward to Jesus. Uh, who died without ever receiving the promise of God, and yet they all walked by faith in the pursuit of God. And, of course, Mary is a New Testament figure. She um, knew Jesus for Jesus' whole life, of course. Um, But Hebrews chapter 11 is restricted to Old Testament saints looking forward they're the crowd of uh, the, the the cloud of witnesses. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it's not that they're watching us, but they're witnesses of God's goodness and God's faithfulness to us, even before Jesus was ever born. So, uh, Janet, that's the reason Mary's not there. 
but no doubt Mary was a woman with um, great, great faith. Uh, she endured things that we can't possibly imagine. Her whole life was turned upside down, we might say right side up, by a visit from the angel Gabriel. And one of her statements ought to be that the anthem that we all live by, may it be unto me as you have spoken. I am your servant. May it be unto me as you've spoken. Even knowing what that was going to do to her life. I love her. Let's go to Jimmy from San Antonio on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. How are you doing, sir? Good, Jimmy. Thank you. Uh, hey, uh, you're, you're right. The world's kind of changed. Changing already. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's changing. And, 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 and as you said, this is what I don't understand. How can they sell it, say that churches are not essential, but there's other stuff <laughs> opening up like like bars and and, and uh, these strip places and all that? You know, it's just, you know, uh, I, I drive by and I see one every day and it's like full of strip places. Jimmy, let me let me just say that we because because um, we have the governor that we have, uh, all of the restrictions have been removed from um, houses of worship. So uh, we're free to to meet together and, and do everything that we did before. And we are so blessed. It was so good to see people coming back uh, that we haven't seen now for a long time. Uh, they're still involved. They're still online. But to see them in the house of God with the people of God. It was an especially encouraging day for me. But, um, uh, you know, all over the world, it's just amazing to me, and I made this comment last week, but it's amazing to me that all we could talk about was was the quarantine and wearing a mask and social distancing and stay home and stay safe. And, and suddenly it's okay now to be out in the streets with thousands and thousands of other people protesting, and there hasn't been a single word. If if one were to say, well, you protesters ought to be quarantining, um, you'd be accused of racism. And it's just an amazing thing. So now there's a whole new thing for the media to jump on. And this um, coronavirus thing is going to get pushed to the back. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see. I heard somebody say today, this is a great test to see where we are with this virus because if after all the protests, there's no big spike, uh, it would seem that we've got the upper hand on this thing now. So um, church is essential for us, Jimmy. Hey, thank you for calling. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Deborah calling online too from San Antonio. Deborah, thanks for holding. You're on the air. There's nothing wrong here. He just, he just saw me and Deborah, okay. are you there? Oh, hi, Deborah. Yes, hi. Um, I think I have to call back, but I'll be right back. Oh, I'll go okay. back a little bit. Thank you. Okay. I'm sorry. I guess we made her wait just a little bit too long. 340-9585. When Deborah's back, I'll bump her to the front of the line. Here is a question that was sent in anonymously from our email inbox. I heard you make a specific statement about Mr. George Floyd saying that he's in heaven, that he was saved. How do you know? As unfortunate and wrong his murder was, I believe his lifestyle was not that of a Christian. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but this is important to know. Uh, a couple of things, Anonymous. First, judge not lest he be judged by God. You don't know his heart. Uh, and I know a lot of people who are saved that are having some struggles in their walk with the Lord. Now, there's nothing in his lifestyle. And I don't know what lifestyle you're talking about, but there's nothing that's been polished about his lifestyle that would indicate that he's not a believer. I said he was in heaven based on people he grew up with in Houston, the church that he attended for most of his life, the the other Christians there, the testimony of others about his love for the Lord. Um, I, I would take them at their word. Um, you know, he he was accused of passing, this whole thing started, he passed a counterfeit $20 bill. Uh, I've had people in my church who have found that they had counterfeit money. Um, that doesn't mean he was counterfeiting, um, and, and we don't know the rest of, of his lifestyle. We've got to be really, really careful, Anonymous, when we start making claims uh, that somebody who um, 
was a lifelong Christian, was baptized, was in service to his church. He, he's, I said he was a Houston um, kid, grew up most of his life in Houston. Um, he was gainfully employed. Uh, again, I don't know anything about his life that would indicate that he wasn't saved. And uh, the people that knew him who are Christians said he was. So I, I was careful to qualify that. Um, I'll take them at their word. And, and uh, unless there was evidence to the contrary, we always want to hope the best. Now let me mention something, and I'm going to make extend this invitation to the radio audience as well. Um, this coming Saturday, every other Saturday here at Calvary Chapel, we have a a pastor's discipleship class. It's it's really a leadership class here at the at the church. Men and women, husbands, wives, single men, single women. Um, and and I'm going to spend the time uh, this time. It's from 10:30 to 12:30. 10:30 in the morning until 12:30. We have prayer from 9:30 to 10:30, and then the pastor's class follows that. Uh, and this coming Saturday, uh, I'm going to spend the whole time talking about um, this issue of racism. And uh, I think it's, it's uh, my, my perspective is, is going to be biblical. What should we as Christians do? What about the church? And, and, and why is there racism in the church? Why are we quick to judge? And, and you know, um, uh, I, I think what we need is to v- understand who we are as Christians in this world and what our position should be, and how we can be a light to the unsaved people in the world. I made a comment last week that I got a little bit of flack over. I said, um, as a Christian, you have no business at a protest unless you're telling people at that protest about Jesus. You see, those people need Jesus. Whoever it is protesting, I don't care whether they're young or old, black or white, I don't, it doesn't matter whether they're, they're rioting, looting, or whether they're peacefully protesting as is their right. They don't know Jesus. It's our responsibility to tell them. And that ought to be our issue, our cause. So this coming Saturday here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, uh, we're going to spend a couple hours talking about this. Uh, it's, it's important that I'm really transparent with our people. I want them to be good witnesses. And if you in the radio audience want to stop by, uh, believe me, we're not going to pass an offering or anything else. So you just come, listen. Uh, your perspective uh, is important. But what we want to do is share the perspective in the heart of Jesus. And I worry when we look at somebody and automatically judge a lifestyle that we know nothing about. So I'm pretty confident we're going to see Mr. Floyd in heaven. And every believer ought to hope that's the case. Anyway, so I hope, Anonymous, that answers your question. I was using what other people said to uh, about him, people who knew him and knew of his walk with, with the Lord. One of the people at his, at his memorial service talked about his passion for God, just loved Jesus with all of his heart. Well, I hope and pray that's true. And I, I don't know there's any evidence to suggest uh, otherwise. Let me go to another question. Daryl says, I have a friend who refers to himself as a non-Trinitarian Christian. What does that mean? Well, Daryl, that means he's not a Christian. Or she's not a Christian. I don't know. Um, uh, you got to have the right God. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's how... The person of God has been revealed to us. The Bible clearly says of all three, three persons, one God manifest in three persons. Um, that's who God is. And if you've got a God who is less than that, then you have a God who can't forgive sins. And I've known people too, Daryl, who say, well, I believe in Jesus, just Jesus. In fact, there's a whole group. They are proud of the designation Jesus only. Um, but, but you see, they're diminishing who he is as well. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. Jesus is the way that the Father is revealed to us. Jesus is the giver of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. So, 
anyone who rejects a Trinitarian God, frankly, is not a Christian. Even if they say, I believe in Jesus, they're not a Christian. Now, when people are brand newly saved, um, this is confusing. And so they don't have to have a handle on it. But here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, and that's what happens upon conversion, well, then he's going to start leading us in the truth. And we're going to come to the conclusion that God is exactly who he said he was. So, Daryl, pray for your friend. Talk to him about the essentiality of believing in the Bible, uh, the, the God of the Bible, who is presented to us in the pages of Scripture as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's a question from Mark. He says, Original sin, is it inherited or something that we commit? Um, Mark, I've never had the question put like that. That's that's interesting. Uh, original sin is inherited. Um, our federal forefather, Adam, sinned. He's the, the vehicle through whom sin in the world, and since we're all descendants of Adam, then we inherit his sin nature. That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, because if a man uh, was was a father of Jesus, then he would have inherited Jesus would have that sin nature. So, original sin is inherited. Now, here's something that you need to understand. Nobody is going to be sent to hell for Adam's sin. We're not going to be judged, nor are we ever going to give account for the sin or sins, plural, that Adam committed. We're going to stand before Jesus, who is the judge of all things. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. When we stand before him, it will be his friend or foe. If we believe in Jesus, it will be friend. He calls us friends. If we don't believe, we're enemies of God, hostile to the things of God. And when we stand before him, we're going to be judged for what we've done with Jesus. So, uh, it's not... Um, I've had people say it's not fair that that I, I'm Adam gave me his sin nature, so I'm responsible. No, we're only going to stand before the Lord based on your sins or my sins, not anybody else's. And it's really an important thing to remember. Um, it's it's uh, perilously close, Mark, to saying, well, if Adam is the one through whom original sin came, then it's his fault. I had no choice in the matter. Every day you get up, you have a choice. I'm going to serve God or I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to please God or I'm going to sin against God. Every single day, we all have that choice to make. We just have to be sure we make the right one. And if we do, the blood of Jesus covers us from all sin. Here's a question from Randall. If you have the gift of prophecy, does that mean you are a prophet? Uh, Randall, it doesn't. Uh, Good question. I'm really glad about that distinction you made. Uh, the gift of prophecy, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the, the, the operation of it is given to us also in chapter 14. The gift of prophecy is, is, is um, just the, the, the word of knowledge God might give you, a gift of wisdom God might give you. Um, the gift of prophecy, I exercise that gift when I'm teaching the word of God. Randall, if you were talking to somebody and you open your Bible and, and, and declaring the word of God, then you're, you also would be exercising the gift of prophecy. But it does not mean you are a prophet. Ephesians chapter 2 makes it really clear that there are no more apostles or prophets. Um, they are the foundation of the church. The Greek makes it clear they're already laid and the church is being built. Now, the standard for prophet is 100% accuracy. And we don't have anybody calling them a prophet who's 100% accurate except those who are truly prophets of God. So uh, we're not a prophet, but we can exercise the gift. So I think that's really an important distinction to make. Randall, thank you for the question. It is a good one. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question that was just sent in uh, from Danny. He said, how do you give scripture to atheists who say, if God is all-knowing, why did God allow Satan to fall? And why did he allow humans to have sin? 
what are some words to communicate scripture with atheists? Um, Danny, you know what? I'm not really big on giving scripture to uh, atheists. Um, I quote general evangelism passages for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believed would not perish but would have everlasting life. Um, th- there is power in the word of God. But um, most of the time when I'm talking to people that don't believe in God, they reject God, um, they're, they're, uh, they're going to immediately turn away from anything that is Scripture. I've had them actually look at me and say, well, look, you just said the Bible said, well, how do I don't believe in the Bible? So in, in a case like this one, and Danny, I think this is a really good question that you could ask. If God is all-knowing, I would ask him, okay, you want to know if God's all-knowing, why did God allow Satan to fall, and why did he allow humans to have sin? If I answer your question honestly, will you believe in Jesus? And, and what you're getting at there is they're asking a dishonest question. That's a question that, that is so sophomoric, a question that is so dishonest at its core. There's an easy answer. Well, God gave us all free will, including the angels in heaven, and Lucifer was an angel. Now he's a fallen angel, the fallen angel, in fact. So God gives us free will to choose. God doesn't force us to obey. God doesn't force the the angels. He gave them a choice. You can love me. You've seen my power. You've been up close and personal. So do you want to believe or do you want to fall away? And a third of the angels made the wrong choice. So it's really important that we understand that. God doesn't pull strings. There used to be a, a doll when I was growing up. My sister had one. It's called Chatty Cathy. And you'd pull a little string on the back of her neck and she'd say the same things over and over and over. Well, God doesn't do that with us. But Danny, these are questions that are dishonest to the core. So ask them, say, look, if I answer your question and my, quest, my answer makes sense to you, are you going to believe? And they're going to change the subject, they're going to do anything they can because they don't want to believe. And the reason they don't want to believe, there's only one reason anybody rejects the wonderful offer that God has made to us. It's because they don't want to stop sinning. And I often, in a case like this, will follow up when when I say, look, will you believe if I answer your question? Well, no, I'm not quite sure. Well, then I'm going to ask him, what's going on in your life? What, What sin is there in your life that you don't want to stop? Sex, drugs, alcohol, gambling, what is it? You're doing something you know is wrong and you don't want to stop. And instinctively, you know, if you have to come to God, if you believe in God, you know there's a choice that forces you. You know, people reject Jesus because they want to continue in sin. It's just that simple. There's no other reasons. And any other reason they give you is not honest. And I've actually found, uh, Danny, that, that when I'm that direct with people, and I do it nicely and I do it very politely, but when I'm that direct with people, often they've come back and said, well, how did you know that I had something going on in my life? I can tell them God loves you so much that he told me. That doesn't make me a prophet. That's the gift of a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. Honestly, if I never heard from God, I know that's the reason people reject Jesus. They just want to keep sinning. Good question, Danny. And keep praying for him or her and keep talking to them by all means. I think I have time for one more question. Boy, this half hour has really gone fast. Um, Gerald says, does the Bible condone slavery? Gerald, the Bible does not condone slavery. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he says, uh, men stealers is the King James. It's one of the reasons I love the King James language. Uh, men stealers are, are doomed to, to an eternity of torment and suffering. Um, what the Bible does is report on slavery. Now, a couple of things you need to remember. Slavery in biblical times has nothing to do with race or color. It was an economic condition. You talk about injustice. In the Roman Empire, slaves outnumbered free men four to one. 
people would sell themselves into slavery. They would get into debt, and and slavery was a way they could uh, escape jail. Uh, Others were born into it. It was part of the family. Um, um, A lot of people remained slaves if they had a a good uh, slave owner um, who was was good to them, and and many were. Um, But it was just an economic condition. And the world has always had slavery. It would have been disingenuous if Paul would have said, you know, if you're a slave, run away. He was teaching converted slaves to Christ how to make the most of their life. Now that you're a believer, then do all things as unto the Lord. He also has the same words for the the owners, slave masters. You have to treat your slaves well. They're brothers in the Lord or sisters in the Lord. And so the Bible doesn't condone slavery. It just reports on it. And we get so culturally sensitive that we take it out of its historical context. We say, well, no, what they should have done is say slavery is wrong. It's a sin. Um, The Bible makes it clear that slavery is a sin. But it was also a fact of life. And imagine slaves. Onesimus, read the little book of Philemon. Uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave and and, uh, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. God made him go back to his slave owner worked out pretty well for him. He became a big, big historical figure in the early church in and around Asia Minor, the church in Ephesus. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to the Word of Standing for Life. Remember, tonight is the opening night of our Sweet Summer Devotion Series. Brielle Ballesteros is the one to pray for. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you tomorrow at AM 630, The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.